Good morning. Pastor Dave, you'll be happy to know that I'm an overachiever. I have not waited till 77 to forget verses. I have done it several decades before that. So I consider myself an overachiever this morning. Uh, last Sunday, I was suffering for Jesus with my parents in Fort Myers, Florida. I know, somebody has to do it. But I uh, went to church with my parents, and of course, it's a retirement community. And uh, they were pleading in this church that has two services for people to stop coming to the early service to go to the late service. I thought, man, that's novel. We have like nobody here today. But they were a full house at the early service, and it looked like this, I suppose, at the second service. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings 12, we'll look at verses 1 to 24. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, how good it is to be in your house, how good it is to sing worship to you and to partake in communion, remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of your son who paid the penalty of sin that by faith we might be saved and freed from the bondage of sin and given paradise because of what your son did for us. And Father, as we come to this portion of our service, when we look at your inspired and errant word, we ask that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts, that we would rightly divide it and that your word would penetrate us and challenge us and encourage us that we might walk rightly before you. You are a great God and that you would give us your word is just so gracious now we ask, Father, that we would understand it and live it for our betterment and your great glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Allow your mind to go back to those days when you were in civics class, in history class, maybe in middle school, maybe in high school, and you learned about the founders of our nation. Founders who had fled from tyranny, in a large part from Europe, looking for political freedom, looking for religious freedom. They were set against tyranny. And when they arrived, there was new settlements made. And for a long time, there was relative freedom, at least if your skin were white. Not so if you had darker skin. We come to the French and Indian War. It's a time period when the French and those Indians aligned with France took up their arms against the colonists. And you remember that England sent their army. At this point, England had largely left the colonists alone, little bits of interjection here or there. But they had come to our rescue. They sent their army. Their army remained after the nine-year war. And because of that, their king, King George III, who ruled for 60 years from 1760 to 1820, 
he began, along with Parliament in England, to initiate a number of acts, a number of taxes against the colonists. He believed that we ought to pay for the army that, by and large, the colonists didn't want, but he had decided that the army was staying and we needed to pay for it. And so he initiated acts like the Sugar and Molasses Act, a sixpence per gallon tax. He initiated the Currency Act, that all currency had to be in pounds, so we had to exchange what we were using for pounds with a upcharge, a tax. He talked about the Stamp Act, which said that all literature had to be printed in England, even if it was to be used among the colonies, with an upcharge. And then there was the act that required us to house, it was the Quartering Act, to house the very soldiers that many colonists didn't want in our land. And this led to a lot of problems. It led to the cry, taxation without representation, because it was King George III and the Parliament that were deciding these taxes and the colonists had absolutely no say. And then in 1773, we had the most offensive tax, the tea tax. Because in those days, the colonists liked a, liked a bit of tea with their meal. And you remember some of the libertarians, some of the patriots, speaking on this side of the pond, they would be called traitors on the other side. They went to the Boston Harbor and they decided to throw a party and didn't invite George III. And they treated the harbor to a spot of tea, about 342 crates of tea, worth about $1 million. And you remember that George III in Parliament issued a number of acts known among the colonists as the coercive or intolerable acts. One of which was that the port in Boston would be closed until the $1 million were paid. And this resulted in 12 of the 13 colonies coming together in the First Continental Congress. And they issued a letter back to George III and they asked George III to think carefully to meet them halfway, to compromise, not to give up his values, but to compromise and not to escalate, but to de-escalate the conflict. And you remember that George III responded by doing nothing. He refused to interact, but a number of months later, he sent more troops. He didn't lift the intolerable or coercive acts, but he sent more troops and issued essentially martial law among the colonists and arrested a number of leading citizens. And in April of 1775, a war broke out in the battles of Lexington and Concord and the Revolutionary War began. What did George III think of the colonists? He thought they were revolting. All right, that was my attempt at humor. I'm going to try one more. What did the Stamp Act lead to? The colonists licking the British. 
all right, I'm not quitting my day job. But herein is the point. Rather than de-escalate conflict, George III escalated conflict. Rather than finding compromise and middle ground, he insisted on his way. His was a win-win-lose-lose situation. He didn't try and find a win-win. He found a win-lose. I win, you lose. He took a page out of another king. A king 2,750 years earlier. A king named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, within three days of taking over the 12 tribes of Israel, within three days, he lost more than five-sixths of the kingdom. He didn't de-escalate conflict. He escalated it. He didn't find compromise. He didn't find middle ground. It was his way or the highway. And it cost him dearly. Let's pick up on our text. I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 to 11. Rehoboam, this is the son of Solomon. We spent the fall studying Solomon. This is his son. Rehoboam went to Shechem. That means he went 40 miles north of Jerusalem, 40 miles north of where he ruled. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. As soon as Jeroboam, notice we have Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and then Jeroboam, they sound alike. Rehoboam is given the 12 tribes and he'll remain king over one-sixth of the tribes. Jeroboam is not a king, but he becomes a king and he leads the 10 northern tribes to secede from the union. They sound alike, but they're very different people. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they, that is the 10 northern tribes, sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came, and they said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father, we call that the corvée, and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son, took counsel with the old man who had stood with Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them while they answer you, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of the old men and he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father Solomon put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Rehoboam's father was Solomon. You remember how the kingdom went. 
We have the period of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes rather than the eyes of God. Then the people called God and asked for a king and God said, bad idea. But they insisted and God said, I'll give you the desire of your heart even though the desire of your heart is wrong. And he gave them Saul. And Saul ruled for 40 years. And Saul was followed by David who had a full heart for God even though lots of sin. And David ruled for 40 years. And David's son Solomon came to the throne and he ruled for 40 years. Now you remember that Solomon during this reign had 700 foreign wives and 300 concubines. And towards the end of his life, these foreign wives turned his heart away from God. Now with 700 wives and 300 concubines, we can safely say that there were lots of potential individuals who were in line for the throne. Lots of people who could have followed or succeeded Solomon. Yet everyone knew that it would be Rehoboam who would follow Solomon in the throne. Now Rehoboam doesn't take the throne until he's 41 years old. In fact, Rehoboam is born before his father Solomon is king. He's actually born in the last year of his grandfather David's life. And he has a silver spoon in his mouth. He's never worked a hard day in his life. He's grown up in the palace. He's grown up knowing that he will be the king, that he is the anointed one. He is the golden child. And I love verse eight, don't you? At age 41, the text calls him a young man. It stands to reason that someone who is in their early 50s is probably almost a young man. And that works very well for me. Frankly, at age 41, we should expect more. We should expect much more from Rehoboam than we're going to get. He's going to show foolishness. He's going to show a lack of maturity, a lack of wisdom. We should expect at age 41 that Rehoboam knows what I trust many here in this room know that we need to ask those who are older, those who are wiser, those who are more seasoned for advice in life. Don't go it at your own age. Don't go it with those who share similar age. Be with those who are further down the road. Ask them for wisdom. He should have known that, but he did not. Now Rehoboam will start well and he will fade fast. One of the things he does, which is wise, is he decides to be crowned, his coronation service, not to be in Jerusalem, but to be in Shechem. Now, if you think of Israel, it's long and narrow. And Jerusalem was way down here, and that's where David ruled. That's where Solomon ruled. That's where Rehoboam would rule. And these northern tribes sometimes feel disconnected. So rather than being crowned here in Jerusalem, he went 40 miles north to Shechem, almost in the middle, and there was his coronation service. He's throwing a bone to the northern tribes. This is an act of wisdom. And we'll see another one in a few moments. Enter Jeroboam, the other guy. Now Jeroboam is no stranger to the kingdom. He doesn't have royal blood, but he had a high position in the court of Solomon. 
He is an individual who has run things. He has managed things. He has orchestrated for Solomon. But somewhere along the line, Jeroboam fell out of favor with Solomon. It's never good to fall out of favor with the king. And so he had to flee over to Egypt down south. He is staying down south until Solomon dies. And when he hears that Solomon dies, he goes back up north. And immediately the northern tribes who recognize he is one of them. And he is a man with many gifts. He is sent to represent the northern tribes to negotiate with the new king. And his negotiation is rather simple. He's asking for three things. We don't want to work as many hours. We'd like the pay to increase a little bit. And we want you to treat us well. And you say, huh, I'd like all those things too. Fewer hours, greater pay, treat me better. Now, is this a fair request? In this case, it absolutely is. Let me read just a little bit from 1 Kings chapter 9, 15, 17, 18, and 19. And this is the account of the forced labor, that's called the corvée, that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his, Solomon's own house. Skipping ahead to verse 17. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Betharon, and Balath and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon and in all the land over his dominion. This forced labor, don't miss those words. This forced labor is the corvée. And in 1 Kings chapter five, we learn a little bit about what this means. It means that if you are an able-bodied Jewish male, which means you have reached the age of 13 and you're not yet 65, that span of time from 13 to 65, you get to work in the factory, you get to work at home for two months, and then every third month, you need to go wherever Solomon sends you to build his palace, his temple, his cities, his storehouses, his gates, you need to do it. And here's the kicker. You don't get paid. You get nothing. And the materials that you're using, you paid for those with your taxes. So you're taxed heavy and one quarter, or excuse me, one, let's see, one third of your time is spent in Solomon's lands in Solomon's places, working for nothing, long hours. And so Jeroboam comes to Rehoboam and says, we will serve you faithful. We have three requests. We can't do this one out of three months. It's a little much. And by the way, when we do this one out of three, we need a paycheck. And, and finally, you got to treat us a little bit better. And here Rehoboam does the second smart thing. He says, okay, I got to think about it for a moment. Give me a few days. Don't we wish, regardless of what political persuasion we are, don't we wish that politicians would say when they're asked a question, you know what, let me think about that. Let me research that. Let me do some study before I say what I want to say because then I'm locked into it no matter how foolish 
what comes out of my mouth may be. He says, we need three days. And then he goes very wise, very, very wise. He goes to the old sages. He goes to the men who had served with his father Solomon for 40 years. The men who had been around the block. Maybe the women who had been around the block. Those individuals who had life experience. Who knew something. Who knew some history. Who had experiential wisdom. And he said, what do you advise that I do? And they were clear. Increase the salary. Decrease the forced labor. Treat the people better. And they're going to serve you till your dying day. And what does the text says? He ignored the advice. By the way, notice the pronouns. They pack a punch. He says to the old sages, what do you advise that I say to the people? Notice what he says to his young guys. What do you advise that we say to the people? Do you notice the switch in pronouns? When he's talking to the old guys, he says, hey, give me some advice. I may take it, I may not. When he's talking to his own group, he says, hey, let's, let's have a little group think here. And as a group, let's decide what we're going to say to these individuals. And you remember what the young people said. My Bible, by the way, has really cleaned up the language. I'm thankful. I would not want you to know what they actually said. It would be incredibly crude. Very, very crude. And so my ESV cleaned up the language a lot, made it from R to G rated. And essentially, they said, hey, who's boss around here? Who's the man? Give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. I mean, you can't give them any of this. Compromise, that's not for leaders. That's for wimps. You need to tell them that if your father was tough, they haven't seen tough. We are going to pile on them. We are going to punish them for daring to ask that they have less slave labor that they receive a paycheck, and that they're treated better. And what does the text say about Rehoboam? In verse 8, it calls him a young man. Now, a few minutes ago, I wanted that term for me, right? Not anymore. It's haladim. It's a pejorative word if you're 41, if you're 13, it's not pejorative. If you're 41, it's very pejorative. A young man means a fool. It means an immature person. It means someone who is not wise. Why is he immature? Why is he a fool? Because he doesn't listen to those who are further down the road. That's what the divine author is telling us. If we don't listen to those who are further down the road than us, we're immature. We're fools. We're acting like a teenager. That's what haladim means. I'm so thankful 
I'm so thankful that Dave Mahler is on staff. I'm so thankful that Dan McDonald is on staff. He's older than me. I'm thankful for some of these wiser individuals who are further down the road. I'm thankful for my parents. I spend time with them. We play Yahtzee, but while we play Yahtzee, and my wife is at the pool while I'm playing Yahtzee, I listen to the wisdom of my parents in their early 80s, and I learn things, things that will set me well for the next steps of my life. I'm thankful that Mops has Mop Mothers who are a little further along down the road that can advise the young mothers. I'm thankful that our young adults have a number of small group leaders that are older than those in the young adult groups to pass on the torch, to pass on the wisdom so that we're not holodim, immature, unwise, foolish. When we raise our kids, we might want to ask our contemporaries, what kind of food do you buy? But we want to ask our parents and our grandparents, how do you raise these children to love the Lord? When we have big decisions in life, we, we might want to interact with our contemporaries for their thoughts, but we want to people 10, 30, 50 years down the road to give us wisdom. America is so, so not good at this. We listen to individuals who don't understand history, who are ignorant of history, who create policy for us as if they have any idea what they're talking about. And we idolize the young. Scripture not idolizes, but admires the old. Scripture says if you don't want to be haladim, you don't want to be immature, you don't want to be foolish, you go to the old for wisdom. Not our own age. Whatever our age is, that's great for companionship. But you want wisdom, you go to those several decades down the road. Rehoboam ignored the wisdom of the sages and it cost him more than five-sixths of his kingdom. Let's pick up in verses 12 to, four, or 12 to 24. Let's lead what God's word says. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, a win-win mentality. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined with you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, 
What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. That is, the kingdom is down south. Jerusalem is down south. You don't care for us up north. To your tents, O Israel. That's a cry from the period of the judges. If you're not familiar, during the period of the judges, there was no nation. There were a number of independent tribes. And the cry was that each tribe... Each clan, each family had to take care of themselves. So what they're saying is, don't worry about the nation. They don't care about us. Each tribe, take care of yourselves. To your tents, O Israel. Look down to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor of the corvée, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. Do you send the guy that has been in charge of slavery to do the negotiations when the people are saying enough with the slavery? Bad idea, unwise. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee Jerusalem. I bet he did. He knows that his life is in jeopardy. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. That was 930 B.C. Do you want to know when the first time we have the reunification of all 12 tribes? 1946-47. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So notice, you know, I said five, six. I said 10 of the 12 tribes. This sounds like 11 of the 12, but now read the next verse. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we have 11 seceding in uh, verse 20 and then 12 or uh, 10 seceding in verse 21. How does that work? Actually, what we have is 10 and a half seceding. Benjamin split in half. So theologians talk about 10 and 2. The Bible talks about 10 and 2 or 11 and 1. It's actually 10 and a half and 1 and a half. We round up, we round down. That's why you get the different verses in the different passages. 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shammai, the man of God. That's a word for prophet. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Foolish Rehoboam. He thinks that compromise means that you are a compromiser. That is not necessarily true. One can compromise and keep one's values and mores. One can find middle ground. One can cease to escalate conflict and de-escalate conflict and have a win-win situation, but he has a win-lose situation. In fact, he says he sends Otterum, the guy who's in charge of the corvée, 
to do the negotiating. That's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It ignites the entire thing and he loses, what? 10 of the 12 tribes. So with our remaining time, let's pull out three thoughts for us today. First, Rehoboam didn't cause the fault line between the north and the south. That started with his grandfather David was exasperated by his father Solomon. He didn't cause the division, but rather than seeking to de-escalate the conflict, he escalated it. He had a win-win, I win, you lose mentality. Often when I do uh, premarital counseling, I talk about four ways to handle conflict, four conflict styles. I'm sure there are more, but I always deal with four. Uh, the first conflict style is avoidance. That means we're not going to deal with the issues. We're going to sweep it under the rug. We're not going to have the tough conversations. We're just going to avoid it. That never solves anything. The second conflict style is capitulation. That's where you have an alpha dog in the marriage. She or he is the alpha dog, and they always get their way, and the other spouse always capitulates, always gives in. You know where that leads? Resentment, 100% of the time. So if somebody is an alpha dog, and always getting his or her way, I can guarantee you your spouse is building up resentment, resentment, resentment. So avoidance doesn't work. Capitulation doesn't work. The next is conflict. That's mano y mano, man for man, hand for hand. That's combat. We go at it. We push and we, we demand our way, both of us. And we never solve anything. And the final is compromise. And compromise does not mean that you are a compromiser. You can compromise and still hold your values and your mores. Compromise means that we work together. We find a solution which is not win-lose or lose-win. We find a solution that is win-win and we both give a little bit. Since I've already been political once, I'll be political again. Wouldn't it be nice, regardless of one's political persuasion, wouldn't it be nice if we had politicians that believed in compromise without giving up their values and we could find middle ground? What we have is I win, you lose, you lose, I win. And we have gridlock all over from the national to the local levels. Rehoboam didn't believe in compromise. He believed in his way. And what did it do? It cost him five-sixths of his kingdom. The second thing I want to note from the text is what servant leadership looks like. Servant leadership is God first, others second, self third. Servant leadership looks at the gifting of those one is leading and seeks to accentuate it, seeks to grow it, allowing people to work and labor in their area of giftedness. 
Sometimes I hear that servant leadership means that the leader always does the dirty work. That's not good leadership. The leader needs to be willing to do the dirty work, sometimes does the dirty work, always humble enough to roll up one's sleeves to do the dirty work, but a good servant leader looks for the gifting of everyone, including him or herself on the team, and maximizes the gifting so that the team as a group scores a victory. Jesus talked about servant leadership. In Matthew 20, 25 to 28, he said this, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, and it isn't for so many of you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. I've seen this often at Highland, and thankfully so. Even as the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, Rehoboam saw leadership as I win and you serve me. Jesus sees leadership as God first, others second, self third, and we pull together so that there is a compromise win for the collective without giving up values and mores. Rehoboam didn't bother with that kind of leadership. It cost him five-sixths of his kingdom. Finally, If we want the next generation to walk with Jesus, it starts with us. It starts with us, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. One of the themes that is screamed across First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles is this. All things being even, it is unlikely, not impossible, with God, all things are possible. It is unlikely that the next generation will outstrip one's parents or grandparents in godliness. It is unlikely. That is screamed all over First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. If we want the next generation to walk with the Lord, it starts with us. Think of Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Rehoboam, 18 wives, 60 concubines, 28 sons and 60 daughters. He said, well, that didn't prove your point. He did better than his father, not really. Remember, he lost almost 11 of 12 tribes. He didn't have the resources. Solomon had a half a heart for God. Do you know what Scripture says about Rehoboam? 2 Chronicles 12, 14, he did evil because he did not set his heart on the Lord. If there's one overriding lesson of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it's this. We need to set the tone for love for God, not only for our own relationship with the Lord, but for the next generation and the generation after that. Some will outstrip us, praise the Lord. I pray that for my kids, my grandchild, all the time. But all things being even, they will not outstrip us. The book or books of Samuel, 
Kings and Chronicles are all about the sins of the father settling on the sins of the son and on the sins of the grandson, daughter, granddaughter. That's what the books are all about. So if we want the next generation to walk with the Lord, it's on us. Solomon didn't walk with the Lord at the end of his life and the repercussions. Rehoboam's his own man, he's guilty, but the repercussions for Rehoboam were great. He lost five, six of his kingdom in three days. Let's pray. Father God, uh, there's so much about Rehoboam that we don't want. We don't want to escalate conflict. We don't want to ignore the wisdom of those who are older, more seasoned than we are. We don't want to be called Haladim, immature, foolish. We don't want to be rash. We don't want to pass on to the next generation apathy towards you. Father, help us to be more like an Isaiah or a Joseph of Genesis. Men who pursued you, a Daniel who pursued you in the face of a culture that did not. May these individuals be who we imitate and live like as we live for you. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.